All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this uh, first day of December 2020. Before I talk more about today's show, I do like to remind you I am the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, a newsletter that's published weekly and monthly, and its focus is primarily on the junior mining sector, not exclusively, but largely so. Uh, and it is a very exciting time, especially on a day like today when gold is up around $38 an ounce. The junior shares are having a very nice day. Uh, also like to encourage you to consider signing up for Chen Lin's letter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? ChenPicks.com. ChenPicks.com is a place to go for that. Um, and uh, Michael Oliver as well. He's not with us today, but he's here every other week, OliverMSA.com. And I uh, want to thank all of you for listening, making this show one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. Also, encourage you to continue sending along any comments you have about this show to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Questions number four, taylor at gmail.com. And we do want to thank our sponsors because without them, there would be no show. Benchmark Metals, NV Gold, Cassier Gold Corp, Hannon Metals, Irving Resources, Novo Resources, Sitka Gold Corp, Lion One Metals, and SK Mining Corp are the sponsors for this week's show. Before I talk about today's show, I want to pass along some very good news for Hannon Metals, one of our sponsors. The company announced on Monday, yesterday, November 30th, that it has signed a binding letter of agreement for a significant option and joint venture agreement with Japan Oil, Gas, and Metals National Corporation, or JOGMEC for short. That's on Hannon's massive San Martin copper and silver project that has world-class grade and scale written all over it. Uh, JOGMEC is a Japanese government independent administrative agency which, among other things, seeks to secure stable resource supplies for Japanese companies. JOGMET uh, has a, a strong reputation as a long-term strategic partner in mineral projects globally, and the mandated areas of responsibility for JOGMEC uh, relate to oil, natural gas, metals, coal, and geothermal energy. JOGMEC facilitates, facilitates opportunities with Japanese private companies to secure supply of natural resources for the benefit of the country's economic development. And under the agreement, JOGMEC uh, has the option to earn upwards to 75% uh, interest in the San Martin project by spending $35 million to deliver a joint venture, a joint, to the joint venture, a feasibility study. San Martin uh, project covers 656 square kilometers 
of Hannon's 940-square-kilometer uh, Peruvian holdings, and Hannon will continue to progress exploration on its remaining Peruvian projects. So uh, this is, I think, a very, very good move for Hannon. It's a massive project. Obviously, it would require a major mining company with major resources uh, to come in there and explore and develop this, uh, and then no doubt other Japanese mining companies will take an interest in uh, later on as the uh, project develops, assuming it does. Uh, it is a very high-grade, very, very large-scale project, and we've talked about it. Uh, we will be talking to Hannon again on this show sometime in the near future. Uh, Hannon shares were up some 27% over the last couple of days as a result of this, uh, of this but even though it's up a lot, its market cap remains very low. It's still only a $32 million market cap. Uh, so I, I, this certainly remains one of my favorites, uh, personal favorites. It's in my newsletter, of course, and uh, as is Lion One Metals, which I will be talking to Quentin Henning about uh, in just a few minutes after our first commercial break. I've titled today's show, Reducing Investment Risk Amidst Increasing Chaos. David McElvaney will be joining me during the second half of today's show, and as I just mentioned, Dr. Quentin Henning will be with me right after the first commercial break. As we end 2020, a year characterized by growing government tyranny in Western world, uh, in most Western countries anyway, uh, and as the West's financial system spins closer and closer to the abyss, the big question for investors who are aware of the imminent financial danger that we face is what, what is going to happen in 2021? A growing number of proponents of modern monetary theory, or MMT for short, suggests that all our problems can be solved by central banks creating endless amounts of debt-based money and pumping that credit into the economy. Currently, former Fed chairman, uh, currently former Fed chairperson Janet Yellen, who is, is slated to become a secretary of the Treasury, is certainly of that mind. But MMT is not modern at all. Essentially, what the geniuses that come out of Harvard, Princeton, and Yale propose now is just a higher-tech version of the disastrous Mississippi company, and there is no reason to think the current policies of trying to create money out of thin air will end in any better form than did the Mississippi bubble of the, late, uh, of the early 1700s. Uh, that, in fact, that event forced John Law into poverty and a need to flee France for fear of his life after the bubble popped. Like the United States now, the wars waged by Louis XIV left France in a very bad economic and financial shape. France became essentially bankrupt because it didn't have enough gold to back the mountains of paper, uh, the mountains of paper money that was created to pay for France's foreign wars. So the death of Louis XIV in 1715 left France's state finances, uh, which were the royal finances in a state of bankruptcy. The royal debts were 3 billion livres, annual income 145 million, and expenditures 142 million. That meant only 3 million livres were available to pay 220 million livres of interest on the debt. And consequently, the debt, which was equivalent of modern treasury bills, traded at an 80% discount to its face face value. But along came John Law, the savior, or so they thought and hoped at that time, 
who, very much like John Maynard Keynes of the 1930s, suggested that there was no need to restrict the money supply by insisting that it be backed by gold. Like Keynes, who was first a mathematician and secondarily an economist, Law was a successful, a successful gambler because he had a mathematical mind that could quickly figure odds. Both men tried to solve a problem rather than understand why it existed in the first place, and so the solution in both Law's mind and in Keynes' mind was to get rid of gold and print as much money as possible and as required to service the debt. Given the dire straits of the French economy was in, when Louis XIV died, John Law weaseled his way into what amounted to be uh, the financial boss of France. Through various means, Law eliminated gold from the French currency. In the near term, the increase in credit-based money that resulted from the detachment of gold seemed to work like a charm, as increased money circulated uh, in circulation resulted in increased trade and apparent prosperity. But that also resulted in a rapid increase in asset prices, which all worked out well as, as long as the Ponzi, as all Ponzi schemes do until investors decide to take profits. In the last three months of 1720, the French currency lost virtually all its values vis-a-vis the British pound. John Law became a pauper and escaped from France to live in Brussels and then in London, where he died broke. Unfortunately, he took a large number of very innocent people into poverty along as well, as just, uh, just as the U.S. Federal Reserve is, in fact, and has been doing for some time uh, to many of millions of Americans that uh, have been called deplorables. Fortunately, for those of you who listen to this show and others, other shows like this and read articles on the Mises website and other places, uh, perhaps you follow gurus like Ray Dalio, you're aware that there is a need to take your savings out of dollars and put them into gold or silver or some tangible assets that will retain value. And today, with gold up more than $38, it seems that that is starting to happen again uh, in, in, the, uh, in our markets here. And by the way, I should mention that Michael Oliver noted in his weekend missive that any rally now over the three-day average zero line in his work would suggest that the next breakout for gold is underway. Well, wouldn't you know it, today the number uh, was 1795. That was the number we needed to see. And with gold exploding by more than $38 to $1,815 just prior to today's show, that suggests the next major move higher in the yellow metal is in fact underway. Unfortunately, a very large number of Americans don't have enough money to buy assets that can retain their value because Americans, like the French folks who lived during the 1700s, were taught that they, become, they could become really wealthy by taking on debt and buying paper assets that have no value underneath them. And I leave with you a question, just as just a thought, and you could send your response to me if you like. Could Bitcoin uh, be on such a current asset trap or shares of stocks that are selling at 100 times earnings or more. Well, I would suggest that for a detailed account of the story of John Law and to see how it relates to what is actually taking place, now I would suggest that you Google Alistair McLeod on John Law to read his article that is posted at uh, the Mises.org website. There is also a couple of videos that I just saw uh, in which Alistair explains the Mississippi bubble and how uh, our current situation is 
is very, very similar to what took place back then. We need to do what we can to learn from history uh, so that we're not doomed to repeat it. Well, we do have to go to commercial break now, but uh, don't go away because Dr. Quentin Henning will be with me right after that to give us an update on Lion One Mines, which is really uh, developing a very exciting project, high-grade gold, very large-scale gold project, we believe, in Fiji. So don't go away. I'll be right back with Dr. Quentin Henning. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Benchmark Metals is an advanced gold-silver exploration company that is rapidly advancing its Canadian gold-silver project to a production decision. Benchmark is nearing completion of its largest program to date, with up to 100,000 meters of resource expansion and definition drilling in 2020. The multi-million ounce potential project is expected to have a new mineral resource estimate and PEA study completed in 2021. The company is backed by the Metals Group management team and believes this aggressive program will be complemented by one of the strongest commodity bull markets in decades. Visit BenchmarkMetals.com and subscribe to follow their success. Cassiar Gold Corp. trades on the OTCQB under the symbol CGLCF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GLDC. Its flagship asset, the Cassiar Gold Project, is a large advanced stage road-accessible gold property with an NI43-101 compliant resource estimate of 1 million ounces at 1.43 grams per ton gold at the Taurus near-surface bulk tonnage gold deposit and 15 kilometers of high-grade gold prospects. The property hosts several past-producing high-grade gold mines and is in search for the next multi-million ounce gold camp in British Columbia. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Dr. Quentin Henning. Uh, he's going to give us an update today on Lion One Metals. Welcome, Dr. Henning, and thanks so much for joining me again. Thank you, Jay. Pleasure to be here. Uh, it's always good to hear your voice, and it's always good to uh, let, our, uh, let our listeners know uh, about the companies. Just a, a brief uh, introduction here, Lion One Metals, is, uh, the story has been told here several times in the past, uh, but just for people that might not be familiar, it trades in Canada in the symbol LIO, L-O-M-L-F is the symbol you can buy it with in the States, 135.7 million shares, uh, $1.25 in U.S. money a little while ago, uh, actually $1.27 now as I look at the screen and a very nice update for gold, it's a market cap of a little over $170 million in U.S. money. So... Um, uh, Quentin, um, last time, uh, uh, your view on Lion Mines, uh, well, you, you had this view of Lion One's uh, project there in Fiji. Uh, you saw it as an alkaline gold deposit, and 
these are very large projects. They're very large gold, high-grade gold deposits, and you mentioned they're about as rare as hen's teeth, I think is the way you put it. Yep. Uh, your view was that that's what actually was there. There was a very high-grade near-surface gold deposit that looked pretty economic, but it was kind of smallish. Um, but you thought you saw something bigger, and lo and behold, it seems as though your vision of an alkaline uh, deposit uh, is panning out to be to be the fact. Can you give uh, our listeners a little bit of a uh, of what the company is planning now uh, with its exploration and what it might be looking forward to and what investors might be looking forward to as we move into 2021? Sure, sure. Let me uh, actually start with a recap and, and kind of sure uh, give a little more detail to what you just introduced. Mm-hmm. So, first of all, uh, Tuvatu, which is the project, mm-hmm. uh, is in Fiji. Okay, yep. It's not far from Nandi, which is the the large international hub there. It's, in fact, only about 20-minute drive from the air, international airport up to uh, site. Okay, so it's a, a very good location. Uh, most people don't realize, but Fiji is a gold mining center. There are gold. Uh, there have been gold mines here, and, and the largest of which is the Vaticola or the Emperor Mine, uh, mm-hmm. as it's called in the old days. And uh, it's produced over 7 million ounces at this point. I believe it has another you know, resource in uh, reserve of say another four million ounces, so it is a ten plus million ounce gold system. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, these these gold deposits they they form in association with what we call alkaline magmas. They're basically molten rock that had a lot of alkali metal, in particular potassium, dissolved in it. And these magmas uh, can carry a lot of gold. So when they come up and they start cooling and crystallizing and so forth. The, the gold has to go somewhere, and the magmas uh, actually dispel the gold. They flush the gold out. The gold gets concentrated into the fluids that come off the magma, and then they get those fluids in, uh, get introduced into the fractures above the magma chain. So you can produce these wonderful high-grade deposits uh, out of these, these systems, and that's what we have at Tuvati. So uh, the company you know, had drilled up a, a resource a bit under a million ounces, uh, but it was, you know, it's a pretty high-grade resource, um, and it's all within, say, 350 meters of surface. It's controlled by uh, these narrow structural zones, which, uh, you know, again, are very high-grade. The little fractures that make up the structural zones often are insanely high-grade. Like, you can have percentages of gold in, in <laughs> tiny, tiny fractures. All right, so when I saw this, uh, I realized, you know, somewhere down in depth, there have got to be bigger versions of these fracture zones. And uh, that's why we we did the work we did last year. We did uh, some geophysics and, and other techniques, and we targeted uh, the deeper part of the system. You know, we're effectively looking mm-hmm. for the trunk or the, the thicker branches, we'll say, of the tree at depth. So um, to fast forward, we, we drilled uh, one hole late last year. It a very nice interval, I believe about 4.3 meters of an ounce per ton. And then uh, we... You know, this year with COVID, it's been a bit of a challenge to operate, but we managed to drill uh, yet another hole uh, mid-year. I think it was uh, July we announced a hole where we had uh, abundant visible gold. Uh, when we got the assays back, it was phenomenal. I think it was, uh, you know, I, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, mm-hmm. but it was something on the order of, uh, uh, I believe, 12-odd meters of uh, 56 grams per ton gold. It was just in, insane. Um, that's not a bad result when you're drilling the deep target and you're using geophysics. Okay, so on the first hole of this target, we we nailed it. Um, very encouraging. 
the company managed to raise some money on the back of that. And quite frankly, looking at the gold space in the past couple of months, that was a, a very good move. Uh, so line one is currently cashed up. It's got about sixty-two million in the bank. But now, now we have to lay the stage, you know, the for what's to come. Like, how are we going to tackle this? Thing? Mm-hmm. All right. So the first thing that we we started to do, we drilled some wedge holes <clears throat> after hitting that high grade. We drilled uh, two wedge holes. The first of which hit high grade right away. We put those results out. We had several meters of, I believe, eighty-five grams or something like that. <laughs> and then. Um, we drilled the second wedge. The second wedge, uh, the drill broke down while drilling it, so it was a struggle. Um, we didn't get to finish the, the entire hole, but we hit about 130 meters uh, of uh, interval where there was just one you know, vein after another, like just boom, 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 the whole way down. Uh, there were a couple, of, I think two or three high-grade pops in there, uh, but what we could tell is we were basically drilling straight down the, the hanging wall of the high-grade vein. So we were drilling, you know, sub-parallel to the high-grade vein, and we didn't go across it, but we knew that we were right, snuggle up right next to it, uh, which is fine. But but that information then told us the orientation of the vein, mm-hmm. and that was really important. It, it, you know, we basically ascertained the thing is trending, call it northeast to north-northeast, and that then allowed us to decide how we're going to drill this thing going forward. Now, here's where it got interesting. Um, so, <laughs> once we found out the thing is going kind of northeastish, uh, the the problem is if you drill it at an orthogonal angle, like you want to drill kind of straight at it, um, mm-hmm. the hill to the uh, to the east and southeast from uh, the this discovery is is very steep. It like mm-hmm. it goes straight up. All right, so we realized that um, we could we could probably sneak a couple pads up there, and we did. We pushed a road up, and we we put two drill pads kind of perched up on the the toe of this cliff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but we realized, you know, pushing any further in that direction was impossible. So uh, we looked at other ways we could drill the dug on thing, and uh, the conclusion we came to was that we could drill it from underground. So there is a, a, a de- decline down the mm-hmm. axis of the deposit. And the decline uh, puts us in a position where we'll probably be drilling it from the north going to the south, or northwest going to the southeast. But it does allow us to drill across the darn thing. Okay, so um, we had, be- because that was the decision that we made to, to drill it from underground, we had to order some rigs. Yep. So we, we currently have two drills uh being manufactured, they'll be delivered over the next few weeks, and we're going to start drilling this thing from underground. Now, <clears throat> this is uh, it gives us three benefits. One is that uh, it saves us a lot of meters because if we're drilling mm-hmm. from underground, we're already closer to the target. Uh, second thing is it allows us to drill at more favorable angles. Um, you know, being a bit lower, it's not like we're sitting there trying to thread the needle from you know standing way above the target. We're actually mm-hmm. closer target so we can drill it at more favorable angles and then lastly uh, it allows us to drill all year okay the, the mm-hmm. wet season is coming and uh, you know there's a time when it's really difficult to work at surface so by working underground we should uh, be able to uh, uh, you know drill this thing uh, uh, all year which is really really good I mean that, uh, that's the best outcome so so look, we're excited. We have we've had to re- revamp our exploration program, but we're excited about the the fact that we'll we'll now be able to drill this thing fairly aggressively. 
the two surface rigs that are operating right now are both drilling at the target. Okay, so I don't want people to think everything's offline. They, they aren't, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we've got two rigs right now that are in progress, and they're targeting the high grade. They're the two rigs that are perched up on the kind of the toe of the bluff. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're, we're poking two holes down there. I think one, one rig's at... Four hundred ninety meters thereabouts. I think the target in that particular rig is about around six hundred, so we're getting close. And then the other rig is down a bit over a hundred meters, I believe. And again, the target's about six hundred meters, so it's a little ways out. But we should be able to cross that high grade structure again here soon. I'm hoping we'll have some nice news around that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it. I think the 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 separation from where we hit the high grade initially is going to be significant, probably at least fifty meters. So it'll give us our first indication of what, uh, you know, what what this uh, high grade thing is doing at depth. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. that should be, and we might see some news how soon on that, Quentin. Uh, look, uh, if we hit the the thing, uh, you know, the assay turnaround is pretty quick because the lab's right there in Fiji. Mm-hmm. So it shouldn't take too long. I'd say with once we go through the high grade zone, uh, you know, presuming we do, and we get assays, it shouldn't be more than uh, two or three weeks out. Mm-hmm. All right, and any idea of how many meters might be drilled, or what are we looking at for 2021? Look, I think that's really open-ended at this point. Okay. We can drill underground, mm-hmm. uh, we can continually drill. I think it's basically going to be an ongoing exploration program okay. from here on out. So, yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't cap the number. Okay, say. great. All right, and then uh, there is some talk of the company – going into production at some point, because after all, it was a very advanced project. They have the permits, I think, to go into production. What are the plans right now on that? Okay, so look, I'm, I'm not the best person to speak about it, but here's what I can say. I can say that the company is firstly looking at people to bring in. I think they, they're going to build up their team. Uh, they're looking at putting the decline in first. Uh, you know, when that happens exactly, I don't have clarity on timing, but I would say they would start a decline, and at the same time, they would then start... Uh, figuring out the rest of the, the the plan around processing and so forth, uh, like designs and so forth, and then uh, ideally they would have everything come together, say within the next couple of years, to go ahead and get into production. Now, ideally, that decline should go down to the depth of this high grade. In other mm-hmm. words, now that we know the high grade's there, you might as well put your you know, <laughs> put a few more t- turns in in the decline, and get down to that depth and be able to pull that in. So, yeah. Well, that would be exciting, and and so as you you could just uh, advance the decline further down towards the juicy good stuff, and and uh, keep poking holes, I suppose, too, and yeah. drilling, and yeah. Oh, well, that's great. Uh, and how well financed is the company, Quentin? As uh, we, have, yeah, the the last uh, count I heard, they had uh, sixty three, and that was after purchasing the uh, putting the payment down for the two rigs they're purchasing. So. It's sixty three. Yep, sixty three million. Sixty-three million. So that should do them okay for the next year, I would think. Uh, easily, easily. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's uh, plenty of money. Very good. Excellent. Well, there's a lot to look forward to here. Uh, anything else? Is that pretty much it? We just have to keep watching, I guess. Huh? Yeah, keep keep watching. I think. Uh, look, I you know, every, if everybody's thinking, hey, there's you know, high grade zone here, and that's it. I don't think that's it. Okay, I think <laughs> there's going to be multiple high grade zones down there. Uh, because the structure is certainly there. So, look, yeah. we got a lot. This is a story that's just beginning. <laughs> it's an alkaline yeah. deposit, and as you say, rear as hen's teeth. And when you find one, they're 
they're worth an awful lot more than hen's teeth. So exactly. Yep. All yep. right. Well, thank you so much, Quentin, for being with us. And uh, the shares are up. I see six percent today on a on a very strong day for the gold market. So uh, well, thanks. thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Quentin. And uh, we'll keep up with you in the future going forward. A very exciting story. All right. Thank you, Jay. All right, you bet. Well, okay, folks, we have to go to break, but don't go away because David McIlvaney of the McIlvaney Financial Companies will be with us, and uh, David always has great insights on the markets and um, a lot more than that. So uh, David will be right back with us right after the break. Don't go away. Voice America is available on your Google connected device. Okay, Google, play Turning Hard Times into Good Times podcast on iHeartRadio. Try it today. NV Gold Core, trading under NVX on the TSX and NVGLF on the OTC, is a gold exploration company focused on uncovering the next multi million ounce gold deposit in North America. With an aggressive exploration season ahead in 2020, a tight share structure, strong management ownership, key strategic investors including Eric Sprott, a globally recognized technical team, technical coverage from industry gold experts, and cash in its treasury. Visit NVGoldCore.com to learn more on this exciting story. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again David McElvaney of the McElvaney Financial Companies. David is the president of that uh, of the McElvaney Financial Companies, which includes uh, Wealth Management and ICA. It's a precious metals brokerage firm. And before taking over the business from his father, who founded the McElvaney Companies, David had a very impressive academic background and achieved honors as a top salesman uh, in South uh, Southwestern Company and gained an extensive business expertise with Morgan Stanley in California. But David's uh, life and goals are intentionally about a whole lot more than grabbing all the financial wealth he can get. Certainly, he and his father before him have had a considerable amount of financial success, but David understands that without a godly spiritual dimension, without a spirit of forgiveness and redemption, which allows us to live joyous and productive lives, we can be downright unhappy and we can cause untold harm to others um, no no matter how much wealth we have. Um, So uh, let me just, uh, I'd like to just read a thought um, that David has put out in a book, a book that he wrote called The Intentional Legacy. And I quote David because I think this is such a, so important beyond uh, the financial stuff we talk about all the time on this show. And David said in the book, and I quote, Our lives are not our own. Every choice we make will shape the destiny of children yet to be born. Every act of love or hatred, redemption or savagery, thoughtfulness or selfishness, 
births a future for ourselves and others. We live lives permeated by legacy, the legacy given to us and the legacy we cultivate every waking moment of the day. We are the custodians of a general story. Ours is but one chapter positioned somewhere in the index of a book of indiscernible length. The narrative begins long before we were born. It continues further into the future than we might imagine. We may not do we may not do with our lives whatever we choose. There is a higher call. We are the trustees, the caretakers of our great grandchildren's future. Our very existence is a gift given by God to be dedicated to his service. That service finds an immediate and practical expression in the context of the life and labor of the family. Our greatest aspirations and highest ideals are reflected in the life we live with our children. It is not enough that our children succeed. We want them also building upon our victories and transcending our defeats. It is our children, not our jobs, which are the most important work of our lives. End of quote. So welcome, David, and thank you so much for joining me again today on Turning Hard Times into Good Times. And I want to thank you so much for the book that you've written, which I think is really an inspiration to me, and I know an awful lot of other people as well. So uh, I, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show again today. And I just wanted to share that part of your uh, of your of your being with our listeners because I think it's so important that people keep that in mind. What is really important in life. So thanks again for being with us. Thank you, Jay, for that that warm welcome back. Yeah, it's uh, it's always good to have you with. Uh, with me, I want to I want to get your views on the markets in a moment or two from now. But I would like to ask you, how can we apply the ideas of forgiveness and redemption that you talk about in your book in our country when organizations like Black Lives Matter and Antifa are burning down buildings and causing untold monetary and psychological harm to citizens in various cities around the U.S. and when we white folks are sometimes called racist simply because of the color of our skin? It seems kind of hard. Um, I know that we're supposed to be forgiving uh, people, but it's kind of difficult. So I'm just wondering if you can give us some guidance how we can do that. Jay, that's a a big question, and I don't know that I'm fully qualified to to answer it. So my opinion is, is straightforward. There's the history which is behind us, the present which um, you know we're encountering, and and obviously a lot of um, uh, frustration. And, and a desire for justice. Uh, justice mm-hmm. is important. Justice is very important. And I'm certainly a champion for that. But a part of justice is remembering the past rightly. You, you can have history as it's changed through time, even if we remember our own lives. There's things that I might remember at age 10, 11, or 12. And the way I remember them isn't necessarily exactly the way they happened. So there's there's a challenge to get at history so that we are dealing with facts and we are dealing with uh, an acknowledgement of wrongs where where wrongs have been done and and it's all right for there to be accountability. I don't know exactly how that works cross generationally Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, something that might have happened a hundred years ago, and and, and I'm as accidentally in this story where I am as someone else is. Um, but I certainly want to understand the sense of anxiety and, and, and suffering, if it is that, that someone else experiences. Um, I don't know that I'll necessarily take ownership of things that don't rightly belong on my shoulders, mm-hmm. uh, 
but it is important where there's things that we have done uh, or contributed to um, that, that we take responsibility for those actions. I think that's perhaps where my frustration might echo yours. Um, I'm not sure if we can take responsibility for things that go, um, that sort of precede us 100 years or something. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm open to the conversation, mm-hmm. and I want to be sensitive to um, what may be a very real struggle for someone else and, and may seem minimized from my standpoint only because of how I was raised and where I was raised and, mm-hmm. and, and whatnot. Yeah, I agree, and I think it's really good uh, to be introspective, to look inside our own hearts and souls sometimes to try to find out, because some, it's very easy, if ha- not having lived in someone else's shoes, uh, not to see what they see and how they see it. So they, uh, the importance of being able to live civilly and be able to discuss with people uh, what our beliefs are, and this is one of the things that's broken down so much now is this uh, ability to discuss civilly with one another and to treat each other with respect is all... As uh, I try to see it as that everybody has been created by God and they're just as worthy as I am. So I think if we can start from that point of view, then it, it's helpful anyway. So but anyway, let's yeah, go ahead. A few weeks ago, I had a philosopher, um, professor of philosophy on my weekly commentary. And we were talking about the issue of fake news. And we were talking about the issue of partisanship. And we were talking about the need for epistemic humility, where mm-hmm. we have to recognize there's some things we know. And there's a lot of things that we don't, and yet there's often claims made to know a lot more than we do, mm-hmm. and you know, so you see the partisanship, the nastiness, the lack of civility in public discourse, and I think a part of it does deal with this issue of, 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 of epistemic humility, or lack thereof, mm-hmm. and if we can engage people with uh, a little bit more epistemic humility, a willingness to listen. And that's coming from both sides. Yeah. All the conversation, I think, can be had. It's harder to have right now um, because people are are fairly convinced they have the whole truth (laughs) and nothing but the truth and everyone else is 100% wrong. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, if you start with that, then you're not going to get very far. That's that's for sure. I did listen to part of that uh, part, part of that episode, by the way, David, and um, and and tell our listeners how they can, where can they go to get? Because you have a weekly commentary that you do, and it's it's usually what it's at least thirty minutes long, I think, isn't it? Yeah, thirty minutes to an hour at the at the most. Um, typically, thirty to forty five minutes. Weeklycommentary.com is the easiest. Mm-hmm. Um, Weeklycommentary.com or McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. Either one will get you there. I've titled today's show "Managing Risks in an Increasingly Chaotic World," and um, certainly. Part of what is uncertain right now has to do with politics and specifically uh, in the United States, at least, with regard to who controls the Senate. Um, certainly there have been, uh, on the on the blue side of the aisle, uh, a desire to sort of do away with a lot of the institutions that some of us have believed are important in terms of, in terms of keeping government from becoming way too powerful. At least those were the views of our founding fathers. Um, do, do you have a sense of, of which way this might go? And either way, could you perhaps comment on what it might mean in terms of our future, um, specifically, I guess, with, ec- with respect to economics, uh, the economic picture, how that might differ depending on which way the Senate uh, tilts? Yeah, I mean, stepping back from the current mass in Washington, what we have seen 
over any time slice, 25 years, 50 years, 100 years or more, is that crisis represents an, a period of time where the size and scale of government ratchets higher. And when mm-hmm. crisis recedes, the governmental footprint does not. So That's right. We, and, and, and it's it's not an issue of, of of right versus left, blue versus red. The reality is the role, the scope and scale of government tends to increase dramatically, the budget with it, of course, um, and then it does not scale back. So mm-hmm. we have that yet again. We've got a, 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 a health crisis, um, and, you know, certainly I'm encouraged to see Death rates on the decline, even though we have case rates on the rise, uh, and and maybe with vaccines, this is this is something that that's hopeful. Certainly, the stock market thinks that it's worth mm-hmm. being hopeful for. Um, but this is what we face in 2021: an increased scope and 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 regimen for government. And um, that would have been the case either way. If if Trump had won, it still would have been the case. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have been just a little less heartburn, perhaps, uh, amongst amongst conservatives, and you know, obviously, more heartburn <laughs> on the other side. Yeah, on the other side, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, with respect to uh, monetary and fiscal policy, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, do we, would would you see more uh, more fiscal policy, more uh, probably and and less monetary, more reliance on fiscal if the Democrats control the Senate? That that'll be the key. So we get through the Georgia runoff, and and we'll have a little bit more clarity on that. It would be a, a tough. Um, the the odds don't favor both seats going uh, to the Democrats. So, and I think that may be what the markets are enthusiastic about too. Is they they see kind of the hands tied. Uh, in terms of real regulation, because I think there's some things that could absolutely strangle the markets mm-hmm. um, if if you had the ability to increase taxes or whatnot. So, you know, the 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 Senate, um, I think that's I think that's one of the real keys. Monetary policy is is shown to be fairly ineffective, and fiscal policy, even with this this week's announcements of um, a stimulus package. Uh, which I presume will be passed in large measure before the end of the year, because you've got uh, the hot potato of of, of uh, over 10 million people losing all benefits, uh, you know, which which will cause a major hemorrhaging uh, within the real estate markets, um, you know, as we go into January, and that's really not the tone that I think anyone wants to set. So, will we see more after the 908 billion? Uh, yeah, I think we will see a lot more. And you know, fiscal policy uh, will just be playing catch up with with monetary policy. We're not going to be tightening monetary policy anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Um, no, that's it's pretty hard to see how that how that could how that could work given the enormous amount of debt. Uh, the fact is, it seems to me that the Fed is is trapped essentially. It can't allow rates to rise. It can't allow the markets to to function and allocate capital. As, uh, as as a free market would, uh, and so this if you have if you have um, you know failure of the Democrats to win both of those seats, and 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 we've and we've got you know blue White House and and, and red Senate, you know there's not going to be an ability to raise taxes significantly, and I think that puts a lot of pressure downward on rates where. 
you know, the only way to extract value and start the redistribution process is, is what they call financial repression. And that, that's mm-hmm. just taking us down to zero. It, you know, you feel like you're at zero when, you know, 30-year mortgage is at 2.72%, the 10-year treasury is at 85 basis points. Um, but even this week, we can remember that low can still go lower, uh, and, and that's that's pretty well illustrated by Greek debt, Italian debt, uh, you know, Spanish and Portuguese debt, uh, you know, at or below zero, believe it or not, um, with with countries that obviously are their credits mispriced. But that I think is something that we have to consider. It, it's it's very supportive to the metals prices, low negative real rates, um, but that is a, another form of value extraction. If you can't move tax policy, they'll get you. Just a different different way. No, yeah. you know, it's uh, it, it's really it's really hard to see. Um, then what? Uh, depending on, I mean, how how are you, how how are you and your team at Wealth Management uh, planning twenty twenty one and and currently how are you allocating? How are you suggesting to your clients they allocate their resources? And how, I mean, what's your, what's your portfolio look like? I know you've got gold in there. That's a given with a McIlvaney, I think. But, yeah, vigorous, um, vigorous debate. There's vigorous debate on the team. That's and good. We've had some productive meetings the last few weeks, but um, some hard-fought meetings too. So, you know, what we're focusing on is process, position size, sector exposure, and, and, and cash allocation as a means of managing risk. And the process is what we're involved with constantly. Um, position size is really determining if we have too much exposure to any one company or sector and of course the sector exposure we're trying to balance particularly in our in our case amongst four different areas of hard assets and we do as you mentioned have as sort of a ballast exposure uh, a metals position Um, but I'd say you know having a health healthy cash position coming in this next year you can't be 100% cash you can run an insane market much higher uh, just on the basis of insane monetary policy. And I, I think you and I both have probably been in the category of folks that lacked an imagination for how high um, things like the Federal Reserve balance sheet could go. And and maybe we think 10 trillion is an outside number. Maybe we discover next year that 10 on the way to 20, you know, we're just getting things started. So what are the possibilities um, you know, the Bank of Japan just this week um, went ahead and marked to market $50 billion in gains on their equity portfolio. Yeah. And, you know, you got folks at the Fed saying, why didn't we do that? We've been buying paper. We could actually be, you know, the equivalent of hedge fund heroes. Why didn't we buy this yeah. index or that index or this company or that company? And, you know, so I think the markets can go higher. My and this is where there's debate on the team, my gut instinct is that we get to the middle of, of January, end of January, and we have the potential for having put in um, a top that remains the top for two, three years, in which case you could see a 30, 40% decline from there. And you know, so you have a tremendous amount of structural frailty within the financial markets, um, but they're juicing the system. And... That's it's it's a very dangerous environment, a very dangerous environment. So where we're putting money to work, we're doing it very judiciously and pretty happy having a metals exposure and a healthy cash exposure, which today is um, 
you know, at a minimum 30% and some accounts as high as 42, 43%, um, which is a reasonably high cash position uh, for us. 42% cash. Um, at the outside. It goes against Ray Dalio's ideas that cash is trash and so are bonds. And <laughs> I get, you certainly would understand that. I mean, uh, but, but cash for opportunities. So you're looking at the possibility of having uh, a significant decline in the equity markets possibly. And uh, it, certainly yeah. is, it certainly is good to have cash when you see opportunities come along. I know how many times I've not had the cash when I wish I had. So from that perspective, it's certainly valuable to have it. I think you have to look at the cash balance as 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 a, an expression of of opportunism, as well as defense. You know where where you see you know the opportunity to add to positions companies that we really like, and we're not at full allocation, so we haven't stepped into the market, and just backed up the truck. And given financial market frailties, we do think we're going to have the opportunity to mo- own a lot more of what we already like, and and so. The circumstances are such that we think that is going to be happening in the first quarter. Um, yeah, we could be wrong. Timing timing can get stretched out. Uh, but that's one of the reasons why we are still putting money to work, too. So that cash balance, regardless of any event driven, will be reduced between now and the you know end of the first quarter. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because the markets can, <laughs> as they say, the markets can remain uh, irrational longer than you can solve it. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, you mentioned four four sectors. So you have cash, you have gold, equities, general equities. Is that the other? The four the four areas within our hard asset portfolios are infrastructure, specialty real okay. estate, global natural resources, and precious metals, particularly the precious metals miners. And so those are four areas that provide both growth and income. When we occasionally allocate to the hard asset itself, not the miners, um, that's done to sort of balance our cash exposure. So with sensitivity to Dalio's cash is trash, we look and say, you know, look at our whole basket of quote unquote liquidity, where a part of that is gold bullion and a part of that is greenbacks. And, and one kind of balances out the risk of the other. Um, and and maintains a, a broad in the we, we still carry it under the broad category of of liquidity. What are your thoughts about Bitcoin? Mm. I have a few. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it is I think one of the most um, for me it's an obvious expression of the speculative juices that are in the financial markets today, and it's just it's one more expression. Of of fast money, of easy money, you know. All of a sudden, gold up twenty percent or silver up twenty seven percent, even with this correction, that looks silly in comparison with a hundred hundred sixty two percent gain in Bitcoin. Who would want to own anything that was only up thirty or forty percent? I mean, so when I when I talk to folks about Bitcoin and what their purchases have been with Bitcoin, it's pretty clear to me that it's 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 fast money. It's make a quick buck. There's not a lot of strategic thinking, but there is a lot of intellectual backfilling to justify and buttress why they own it. Well, you know, it's like 21st century gold. Well, you know, it's going to replace gold. Well, you know, and, and, and it's really not, but all those legitimate references with the ancient barbaric relic, I, I think still hold. The, the value of gold in a portfolio is legitimate. And I'm not saying Bitcoin doesn't have a place in a portfolio, but I think of it as, as a lunch money investment. 
you know, where if you, if you can, you know, if you have one percent of of a portfolio in something like that, it is in the category of a speculation. If it is going to be a currency someday, the best you can say is that today it's a very young currency. Mm-hmm. It has not matured. It is in no way a store of value, or 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 a means of exchange. Um, you know, you still can't buy a cup of coffee with it, and maybe that changes, right? So, mm-hmm. so as it matures, maybe it becomes more interesting. But I'm also guessing, Jay, that yeah. as it matures. And as it really challenges the money monopoly, mm-hmm. what do you think the folks who have the money monopoly are going to say about that? Well, and, exactly. And, yeah. and, and that's where I think that, you know, referencing back to Ken Rogoff, when he wrote his book, The Curse of Cash, mm-hmm. you know, he was, he was all for moving to a digital-based, you know, society or, and you, where we, we, you don't have physical cash. So you'd think, well, digital's got to be the thing. This is what he said about Bitcoin. What the private sector may innovate, in due time the government regulates and appropriates. Yeah. So to me, the best case scenario is Bitcoin is a success, and then it's regulated and appropriated. <laughs> and it's not what you thought it was. You were yeah. thinking it's a, the greatest expression of, of monetary freedom we've seen in the 21st century, I would yeah. say, gold, and it ends up being something of a trap. I think there'll be yeah. some irony in that as 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 it unfolds in time. Uh, certainly, certainly interesting. I know, David, when we spoke to you last, um, you, you don't buy into this idea that the dollar could be in trouble as the world's reserve currency. I think you see it, uh, at least for the foreseeable future, as the major currency globally. Right? I mean, it's 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 a it's a difficult question in the sense that yes, the dollar is doomed. Um, but no, it's not going to die tomorrow. Um, you know, and 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 you see, so you see less interest in having it as a reserve asset. Who are the people who don't want to have it? You know, Turkey and Russia has been really interested in ditching the dollar and going to gold. Well, that's interesting. Um, but that doesn't mean that our role as the world's reserve currency has changed. Um, it's 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 a it's a a long road. Before it's a short road, I, I, I forget which writer used to say, you know, in describing um, bankruptcy. How did you go bankrupt? Slowly, then all at once. <laughs> I think that's a, that's the deal for the dollar. It's a slow process. Don't count on it, you know, going up in smoke tomorrow. But when it happens, it'll surprise you how quickly it happens. What you need is a replacement currency. You need something in line with sort of Thomas Kuhn's. S- stories is as he as he describes it in the structure of scientific revolutions. If you're going to have a shift in thinking on a particular idea, in this case, the world reserve currency hegemony, you have to have a replacement. What's the replacement idea? What's the replacement currency? Could have been the euro? Not really. Now, could it be the RMB? Don't know. Maybe it mm-hmm. is. Um, but their capital markets aren't deep enough yet. Their their bond markets aren't aren't liquid enough yet for that to be the case. Mm-hmm. That takes time. Yeah, it's going to take some time. And we're just about out of time. Uh, having, just, having one, that, I just want to say one thing on the dollar because it just yeah. broke 92, which is a very critical support. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, it's one of the things that is energizing, um, I, I think, an awareness amongst investors that no gold is not done in this particular cycle. We sat at 92 last week on support, hit 91.7, now 91.28. And this is not a good story. This is not a good story at all if you're talking about the short-term technicals for the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and, and that's one of the reasons why I think gold's having a, a pretty strong move earlier this week. Yeah, I think you're right. And uh, certainly Michael Oliver, who is uh, on our show almost every other week, uh, says also that 91 is a, is a key area, and he he thinks we're going down to 85 on the index So uh, if we break that. So that would certainly put some wind at the backs of gold. And uh, silver, I suppose you like a little better than, than gold in terms of its percentage possibilities on the upside. And, and what about copper with about 30 seconds left? I do like copper. Uh, it's an area of, of emphasis for us, although getting a pure play is not altogether easy in terms of the quality of companies uh, available. Um, silver is interesting. Through this whole correction, you've maintained a, a gold-silver ratio of about 77 to 1, which has been very healthy. Uh, not a lot of deterioration in silver vis-a-vis gold, which has been very healthy. And this last week, even the mining shares only losing what the metals lost was a very good indication of support in the markets. So I would look at silver as, as having a strong move. We're at 75 to 1 now. Mm-hmm. That'll settle into the 40s. That may be this wow. year, which would be wow. quite an performance. Wow. Boy, that would be uh, great for silver, that's for sure. All right. Well, that's it, David. That's all the time we have. Thank you so much for being with us once again. It's always a pleasure hearing your thoughts uh, on the markets and beyond. So um, we'll look to... Talk to you again sometime soon, hopefully, and uh, all the best to you and your family and your team there uh, at the Mac of any group of companies. Thank you, Jay, and thanks for starting with that idea that we're custodians of a bigger general story. Very important, very important for joy and happiness and success in life, overall success, not just monetary success. Thank you so much. Well, folks, that is it for this week. Next week, Richard Mayberry will be with me, Michael Oliver, and Marco Rock of Cassier Gold Corp. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. 